Hello, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, pastoring at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thank you for joining me today, where we are following along the Come Follow Me curriculum schedule produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as those Sunday school classes are going through the New Testament this year. And I'm looking at the schedule as a Bible church pastor and picking a passage for each week and giving you some of my thoughts as a Bible church pastor, which this week brings us to Mark chapter 14. Now, it's kind of interesting. This week we are going to the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane, but then next week we're going to the Upper Room, followed by uh, going to the crucifixion. So kind of naturally, as you read through the uh, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it goes Last Supper, Garden of Gethsemane, Trial, Crucifixion. Well, the Gospel of John is not one of the synoptic Gospels, meaning it's more unique in the way John presents the story. Not that it is contrary to the other three, but he brings a unique perspective. It was written sometime later, and he was, of course, very close to Jesus and has a lot of unique content. Well, John is actually next week going to take us to the upper room, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit next week. And then we're going to go to the trial and crucifixion of Jesus after that, before uh, getting into uh, more stuff like the resurrection and ascension and the building of the church and all that fun stuff. All right. So this week we're talking about the Last Supper and what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane from Mark chapter 14. So that's where we will be. If you have a Bible handy, you can open that up, have it with you. Or um, if you just want to follow along on video, I'll have the Bible right here in front of us with one click. Look at that. There it is. Isn't that amazing? Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22, after having Passover, observing the Passover meal with his disciples, here they are in this upper room together, and Jesus uh, gives them some very interesting instruction regarding a new memorial meal. Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. Eh, I didn't write, quite read that right. Let me start that over. Verse 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. There we go. And gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, so Mark's version of the gospel here, again, not contradictory to the other versions of the gospel. There are some people who try to make that argument, some non-believers, non-Christians who try to say that you read the four gospels and you got four different stories, basically. That's not true, uh, or that they contradict one another. That's not true. I always find it really fascinating with uh, people like that. I'm really getting off topic here, but by God's grace, I'll come back around. Uh, with people like that who say, 
you know, uh, the the Bible has all these contradictions where you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they, they go against each other. They're not in harmony with one another. They're like competing narratives about the life of Jesus. But those are often the very same people who say that the Bible's been manipulated by man. It's been constructed, patched together over a number of years. We have no idea what the original said. It's like, okay, well, you kind of got to pick one of those because if man was manipulating the text of the Bible to create the narrative he wanted to create and was changing what the originals said to better fit the overall story or something, don't you think they would have eliminated all these supposed contradictions? <laughs> How stupid do you think they were? They had full control over manipulating the text of the Bible before it was sent out into the world, which, you know, this never happened, but that's kind of the history channel type narrative that gets thrown out there. There were these men who were in this smoky dark room and they were, you know, cutting and pasting the Bible together and they they were just totally rewriting basically what what was there so they could have the product they wanted and when they were done it was full of contradictions and it made no sense. <laughs> what? It's like, okay, you got to pick one. If you're going to fire shots at the Bible, you can't fire both of those shots. You got to pick one of those shots to fire, and then we'll examine the claims. Uh, It's just so silly uh, the way people really want to dismiss not just the Bible, but the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because uh, when that happens, then there's like moral accountability and obligation and uh, stuff like that, and they don't want to have that in their lives, and so they come up with these claims that go against the Bible. Anyway, I digress, don't I? Um, what, what was I bringing that up for? I, I hear I was so confident I was going to bring this back around, and, and now I, I'm not sure if, I, <laughs> if that's going to happen. Mark, okay, yeah, that's what it was. Mark, <clears throat> in his gospel, he is uh, writing to Romans. That was his audience, and his favorite word in his gospel is immediately. That word comes up over and over and over again. And he's the shortest gospel. He's only 16 chapters. And he's very quick in everything that he says. So uh, in everything he describes. He describes the Lord's Supper here. He does so quickly, just like he does with everything else. And there's something that Jesus said at this institution of the Lord's Supper that Mark doesn't record, which is Jesus's phrase, do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus gives them the bread, says, this is my body, gives them the wine and says, this is my blood. And then he says that they are to continually have this memorial meal for the purpose of remembering. It's a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. So just because Mark's gospel doesn't say that, that doesn't call into question, did Jesus actually say that or not? It's just Mark didn't include it because Mark is not Matthew and he's not Luke and Luke is not Matthew, and Luke is not Mark or John, you know. So they're different guys telling the same story from different perspectives. Uh, One way to think of it is, uh, this is a common illustration, but I, I think it's very helpful. When a major event happens in a city, and the city has their four major news stations, you got your NBC affiliate, your ABC affiliate, Fox, CBS, and and they're sent to the scene to report. Well, they don't all say the same thing. Right, They're reporting on the same event, but they're doing so with different words and with a different angle. Though these days there's more and more evidence that kind of the media is all the same. And there are actually some cases where they actually say the same thing verbatim. But uh, 
the way the media is supposed to work is you get four different reports from four different angles, but that they give you information about the same event that helped fill out the overall picture. And that's what's going on with the Gospels. And so in Mark's Gospel, it doesn't include that line, do this in remembrance of me, but that's obviously an aspect of what Jesus is instructing them here, is to memorialize his atoning work through this meal until he comes. All right? So let's go back to the text here and, and consider it again, verses 22 to 25, where Jesus is introducing this concept, and he says that this bread represents his body. This is my body. Now, of course, there are different views on communion, because we're talking about Christianity here, and there are different views on everything. You can find somebody who holds any kind of view, basically, out there in the world somewhere. But this, more famously, has different views. When Jesus gives them the bread and says, this is my body, you'll hear from Roman Catholics that what he was saying is that when they consume the bread, it actually becomes the body of Jesus. That's a view called transubstantiation. What a word. Well, there are other views, of course, to this, like uh, the Lutheran view is consubstantiation, where uh, the The bread doesn't transform into the substance of Christ, but the substance of Christ is with the elements, the bread and the juice, uh, in and around. Christ is present in and around the elements. The elements don't actually transform into Christ, but his substance is in and around the elements. And uh, the view that, you know, I take is more of a strict memorial view, really, where, of course, Christ is present when we continue to observe this memorial supper. He is, uh, in one sense, technically present everywhere, uh, where two or three are gathered in his name. He is there. That's an important uh, verse. Sometimes it's misused, but, I mean, the fact remains Christ is omnipresent, and he is there with his disciples until the end of the age, it says at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus said at the end of Matthew's gospel. When his church is gathered and they're observing the Lord's Supper, is he there? Well, of course he's there. Do the elements, the bread and the wine, become the actual flesh and blood of Jesus? No. Is there a way that we should try to find uh, this way to say that he's like specially present in and around the elements? I don't see a need for that. He's introducing a memorial meal, and we are to, as Christians, we are to observe this meal continually for his glory, to remember him and what he has done on our behalf. I don't think we need to try to force some sort of special presence view. Uh, It just doesn't seem necessary for me. But he he gives them the bread, he gives them the cups, uh, or the cup, rather, singular. Notice in verse 23 that we are talking about a singular cup, and after he gave thanks for it, they all drank from that singular cup. This was, of course, pre-pandemic days, so... (laughs) Maybe pre-OCD about germs days, I don't know. But they all drank from the same cup, and he tells them this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is my blood of the covenant, Jesus says. What covenant? Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? What covenant? Well, um, the new covenant is what it is. I'll just cut to the chase. It's the new covenant. There's this uh, new covenant initiated with the atoning work of Jesus. This is the foundation for the church. The church is built on the uh, covenant of God, the blessings that come 
from this new covenant being initiated by the sacrifice of Christ. And the new covenant is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. I have videos on those in this series. If you access the playlist here on YouTube or Facebook uh, or on SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this, you can find the, the full playlist and you can go back and find where I was talking about the new covenant prophesied in the Old Testament. Well, here it is. The new covenant has now come. Jesus himself is given as a covenant to the people. That's Isaiah 49.8. So Jesus is giving his own life, initiating the new covenant in his own blood. And this new covenant is a wonderful reality. It's um, It includes so many great blessings. The total forgiveness of sins, where you don't have to make another atonement after this final sacrifice. It includes the coming of the Holy Spirit, that he would come not just upon people and then he would leave, but he comes upon those who believe and he remains the promised Holy Spirit. And again, we'll talk about him next week from Jesus's teachings in the upper room in uh, John 14 to 16. I have to take a drink of water. Is that better? Yeah, I think that's better. (laughs) We'll just roll with it. So uh, the the total forgiveness of sins, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and there's also this uh, internalization of the knowledge of God. These are all things listed out in Jeremiah 31 and uh, 33 and Ezekiel. These things happen to those who are members of the new covenant. Now there's more that happens with this new covenant particularly for Israel. There are new covenant promises made to the nation of Israel in particular. But uh, this new covenant has been initiated, and the blessings of the new covenant have become accessible in the present day, even though it hasn't been totally fulfilled yet. And it, it all started when Jesus offered up himself as the final sacrifice, and the blood of the covenant, which is his blood, was poured out for many. And then he tells them in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What a what an interesting promise. He says, you know, truly I say to you, which is, uh, you know, pay attention to what I'm about to say. He's never again going to drink of the fruit of the vine. He's not going to have wine again until... He's in the kingdom of God. So this tells us a couple things, a couple basic things, and I'll just list them and leave it at that. One, he knew he was about to die. It was certain that he was going to uh, not have another meal. He's not going to be drinking wine again. This is it. That's interesting. Second thing is that he looked forward to this time with great confidence where he would be expressing his dominion, his power over death, over sin, over all of his foes, when he's drinking wine again in the kingdom of God, when he's feasting and expressing himself as the victor over all of his enemies in the kingdom of God. He'll be hosting a meal that you may or may not be at, depending on what you've believed. He's going to be hosting a meal displaying his dominance over the grave and over all of his foes. 
What a cool thing. So those are the two things we can learn from that simple statement of Jesus. And they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as they're going, here's just an interesting thing. I'll read these uh, verses together, these five verses, starting at verse 27. Also, I think it's cool they sang a hymn. I don't really want to gloss over that, but for the moment I will. We don't know what they sang, but we know it was a hymn, and uh, that's pretty cool. Okay, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were, or they all were, saying the same thing also. (laughs) Foolish Peter. We know what happens there. I won't dwell on that. I will dwell, though, on this statement of Jesus. You will all fall away because it is written, and he quotes Zechariah 13 here, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. (laughs) So a mention, a casual mention of you know, being resurrected from the dead and meeting them in Galilee. Well, that's pretty amazing. Well, he says they're all going to fall away. What does that mean to fall away? It means to stumble, means to uh, be put in a position where you're caused to sin. Um, There are different ways of translating that. Scandalized would be a strict transliteration of that. It's where we get our, our word for scandal or scandalized. It's not a good thing, no matter how you translate it here. It's not a good thing. You will all fall away is how the New American Standard 1995 chooses to translate it. And it's not good. You will all fall away because of Zechariah's prophecy that when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep will be scattered. And, of course, in Zechariah's day, he's talking specifically about Israel. That's what Zechariah was prophesying about was the scattering of the sheep of Israel. When their shepherd would come, he would be struck down, and the Israelites would be scattered. Now, this, of course, is what happened. You have, in one sense, the uh, disciples scattering whenever Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed by all of his disciples. None of them are there sticking up for him, and Peter does go on to deny him. So, in one sense, you've got that little flock of, of 12, Judas, of course, being chief among them, betraying him. Then you have uh, this idea, too, of Israel as a whole being scattered or dispersed. You'll sometimes read about the diaspora, diasporia. Now I'm confused. I think it's diaspora. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, That word is in my head, but I can't remember if there's an I before that final A. I think it's, I don't think there is. Diaspora. I think that's a way to pronounce that. So you have this uh, dispersion of Israel that happens toward the end of the first century. In 70 AD, which I talked about in, was it my last video? Time is a weird thing. Let's see, we're talking about Mark 14 here. Yeah, my last video. Talked about the, uh, the 70 AD stuff where the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And when that happened, there was a particular, very 
comprehensive scattering of Israel, where you had uh, the the people of the nation that were just shot out across the world. And uh, from that time, they kind of became a people without a home. So they were totally dispersed uh, throughout different regions in the world. Uh, in Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 13 that Jesus is quoting here, he's talking about a time where the, the sheep of Israel will be scattered. He goes on to talk about, and two-thirds of the people, as they are uh, back in the land, two-thirds of the people will be cut off. They're all going to go through trial, and two-thirds are going to suffer death and be cut off during that trial, whereas one-third uh, will come forth as a born-again remnant of God. And that part hasn't happened yet. That did not happen in 70 AD. And so you have this reality of the shepherd being struck down. That's, of course, Jesus's death, and that did happen early on in the first century. You have the sheep being scattered, which started there at the death of Jesus, but continues on and really got amplified in 70 AD. And then you have this picture of them coming back into the land, returning to the land, and all being judged. And two-thirds are going to be cut off, and one-third is going to be saved. And that part has not happened yet. And there's a lot more to say about that through the Old Testament prophets, this return to the land in the last days. It comes up quite a bit, actually, from Moses all the way through the end of the Old Testament. So that's what's going on there in Jesus' words, talking about uh, this scattering business, the sheep being scattered. But notice that he jumps right to a resurrection. He's going to meet them in Galilee when he is raised. He's certain of this. He's confident of this. Well, um, as they're all (laughs) bumbling, mumbling, fumbling with their words, talking about they're never going to fall away. They're going to die with Jesus. They're going to be with him till the very end. They're all saying this. They're all very confident in themselves. We transition into this scene at Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And they are immediately shown that they don't know what they're talking about. Verse 32, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. Simple command. Verse 33, And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So there's their command. The uh, the nine were to sit there until he prayed. And these particular three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, they were to remain at that place and keep watch. All right. Verse 35, And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. 
And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Wow. Interesting, very familiar story. Jesus praying, the disciples sleeping. (laughs) Jesus expressing disappointment with the disciples. Could you not keep watch for one hour? That's what they were told to do is keep watching and praying. And they failed over and over again after saying, oh, we won't deny you. We, we will die for you. Really? You can't even keep your eyes open. And how privileged Peter, James, and John were to be there in the garden with Jesus. Of course, there's no way for them to, to grasp the significance of that in the same way that we can now on this side of all these events. But wow, you just you think you were right there with the perfect son of God who had worked miracles and taught you so many amazing things and you couldn't keep your eyes open? He's praying to the Father before he's about to be crucified and resurrected as he just explained to you and you can't stay awake? That says something about how incapable we are, doesn't it? It says something about the weakness of our flesh. It says something about the deep root of sin that lies within Every man, wow, 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 wow. So Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, you know, all things are possible for you. But he asks the Father if it's possible that maybe this hour of trial would pass him by. And he says to the Father, remove this cup from me, the cup of his wrath, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Why is Jesus praying these things? You ever wondered that? Is it because he didn't want to die? Like, is this just his humanity crying out and saying, uh, I, I don't want to die. I want to live forever on the face of the earth in this fallen world. Is that what he's praying? Because you know that Jesus knows all things. He knows the heart of every man. He knows how depressing the world is. He suffered. He was tempted in all things as we are. I mean, does he really want to stay in the world? Well, maybe it's just the death. Did did, did you just want to die a different way? Did he want to die in his sleep instead of being crucified? Maybe maybe that's what he's asking for. Hmm. Or is there something else going on entirely? I kind of lean that way. I, I don't think... Jesus is crying out in his humanity to be saved from a painful experience. I mean, there may be an element of that, but I don't think that's the main thing going on here. I think Jesus is here displaying before the disciples, even though they're not being very attentive. I think he's displaying to them the necessity of his death in their place, suffering the wrath of God. He's displaying to them that there is no other way. If it's possible, let this hour pass me by. Please take this cup from me. But no, I mean, the the, the father answers and says no, right? Now, not explicitly in the text, but we know how the story goes. Uh, So Jesus actually had a prayer of his denied, where the father says no. 
And I don't think it's because there are competing wills between the Father and the Son. I think it's to display for us that there is no other way of salvation except Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. That's what Peter would go on to preach. Sleepy Peter would preach this in Acts 4.12. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus alone. And what more evidence do you need than the Son praying to the Father and saying, let this cup pass from me, and it doesn't. If, if there's any other way, have it happen. There is no other way. So it's showing us just how important, just how vital it was that Jesus would be the one to die and that he would do so in man's place for his sin. This cup of God's wrath would be poured out on him. What an amazing thing. Well, uh, next week, like I said, we'll be going back to the upper room. We'll be leaving the garden, going back to the upper room to look at what Jesus had to teach us about the Holy Spirit. And then after that, we will go to the death of Christ, the, the trial and the death of Christ. Thank you for listening. Hope you have a wonderful day.